0: Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaBusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com.
2: is Jason Van Clef. Uh, He is the president and CEO of VFG Securities, uh, and he's a real expert on the whole subject of diversification. Uh, He's just come out with a new book called The Wealth Code 2.0. Welcome to the show, Jason. Jordan, thank you for having me. Let's just start with a little bit of your background and uh, how you got to where you are today before you uh, wrote this book.
3: You know, ultimately, uh, back in the late 90s, I was a trader and trading for myself and then Uh, came into the 2000s and ultimately uh, just got uh, very uneasy with seeing the 1999 markets and so forth and seeing the potential for just, you know, chaos with the stock markets. And I decided to start working with clients to kind of teach them a different approach to money, which is something I've seen, you know, really coming from my grandfather, who uh, built wealth from tangible stuff. And over the last 13 years, basically, have just, Kind of refined and kept modifying this kind of diversification uh, techniques that we do with our clients and to a lot of success um, basically ideas based on owning many many different concepts or as i like to call it legs on a table and more the better and uh, it worked pretty well and then finally um, you know put out the first book in 2009 after the first stock market collapse i kind of felt people needed to be shooken to the core a little bit before they might be open to a different version and, and now with the latest book, which came out a few weeks ago, again, it's my concept of trying to teach people a, a little different viewpoint on wealth that is very not focused on the Wall Street methodology.
2: So what did people not learn about the peaks, particularly in 2000 when you had the dot-com boom and then the boom in the mid-2000s with the housing boom? and Why is it that they did not learn that diversification is important? Uh, you know what, I tend to, I, you know, we do some fun
3: presentations for clients, and I tend to think about how people's memories tend to get shorter and shorter and shorter with the latest headline and the latest, you know, whatever, CNBC or this or that. And, I mean, you look at, you know, perfect example, look at today. Here are the Dow's at, you know, record highs, yet we're just a little bit over the 2007 high. And I like to use a more bre- broad uh, indicator, the S&P 500. We're basically below where we were in 2000. And and yet, you know, you go through these time periods where a lot of chaos and anarchy, 2000 to 2002, the markets wipe out 50%. And then we had 2003 to 2007, life was good again. Markets were moving up. You look at consumer sentiment in July of 2007, right before Bear Sturms popped, and people were hunky-go-dory. Uh, then, unfortunately, we have <laughs> the 2008-09 crash, and... Uh, and now here we are again. I mean, you look at the markets today, consumer sentiment is as high as it was in 2007, and people, are, again, are kind of have forgotten the lessons of just a few years ago. So
2: is the lesson diversification, or is the lesson to be a contrarian, to be selling and everybody's buying and buying and everybody's selling?
3: Well, I think the lesson is actually more focused on just staying with the Wall Street methodology, which is stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and effectively annuities. And, you know, to me... Uh, One thing that we advocate with our clients is just owning a lot of other stuff that are not on the stock market. It might be little houses, it might be bullions, it might be equipment trusts or BDCs, all these many different, you know, we use a metaphor at the firm of your wealth as a financial table, and we want to put as many legs on it. People keep redesigning what I call a one-legged table, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and annuities. And yet, you get a year like 2008 rolls around, it clips that leg, your whole table collapses. And so what we're trying to do is just, you know, and what I think people are not learning, because, and I'll be blunt, the vast, vast majority of financial advisors only understand a one-legged table. That's all they're allowed to work with. And, and you might see 10 different advisors, and all 10 of them give you a different version of a one-legged table. Uh, my belief is you have to have a table with many different legs that have nothing to do with each other, We have one guarantee in finance, and that is something will go wrong. I promise you, something will not go right with some investments. And if you have all of them in one-legged table, well, then you're really in a weak position. Whereas if you have 10 different legs, two or three breaks, seven or eight are fine. You tend to support and keep moving ahead. I think that's a lesson that's not being learned.
2: During this interview, we're going to go into details of the different legs that you talk about. So we'll, we'll give people an idea of that. You begin your book by saying you should free yourself from conventional thinking. Is is this what you mean by conventional thinking, the one-legged table, and and how should you free yourself from that?
3: You know, actually, and it goes from conventional thinking more to common sense. Um, I mean, we're told ad nauseum, if you have a whole bunch of stocks, bonds, and mutual funds, I mean, you can be diversified, whether foreign, domestic, mid-cap, small-cap, blah, blah, blah. The problem is they're all tied to the market. And my belief of conventional thinking is there's a lot of uh, a lot of advisors out there that will discuss certain concepts in kind of a, a general, you know, blanket for everyone. And yet, you know, a good example of this, you know, we hear this all the time: pay cash for your car, pay cash for your car, pay cash for your car. Uh, that is pretty much considered conventional thinking. You know, it's a smart way to do it. And, you know, for a lot of people, it is a great choice. Don't get me wrong. No people are exactly the same. Everyone's situation is different. That being said, if I change the story of buying a car to something else, it tends to show people a different viewpoint. For instance, if I said, you know, instead of buying a $20,000 car for cash, let's take $20,000, put it into a mutual fund. In five years, that mutual fund is pretty assuredly going to drop by at least 70 or 80% in value. And along the way, you're going to pay tons of expenses for it. No one in their right mind would ever invest in that mutual fund. Yet that's exactly what happens when someone takes $20,000 of their wealth and buys a car. The difference is, you know, here's an example of unconventional thinking. It's not very easy. and It's one of the stories I talk about in the book. You know, instead of maybe taking that $20,000 and buying a car outright, Maybe you go through some effort and some time and a lot of heartache and, and go purchase a little single-family house somewhere in the country. Maybe your whole deposit and, and, and closing cost is twenty grand, And maybe that house, you know, if you've done a, a good job of doing this, sits out 400 bucks a month or whatever it might be and make that your car payment. Well, what do you have at the end of five or six years is you have a car that's devalued but you might have this house that has potentially protected your wealth, and maybe even put in a couple extra bucks in your pocket. So, what I talk about conventional thinking is a lot of issues are described to investors, which when you really analyze, you go, "Geez, that's not really good for my wealth building." Um, and and it sounds good, but when you when you factor it, it doesn't really help
2: me in the long run. So, talk about diversification and how over time, if you're properly diversified, you'll end up getting a higher return with lower risk than if you're not as well-diversified?
3: Well, what you're describing is Markowitz's portfolio theory, which is the whole classic of you add more legs to the table, and, you know, he won his Nobel Prize way back when for this. You know, the more tools you put, the lower your risk and the greater your return. I tend to take that viewpoint, and I agree with the idea of lots of legs on the table, but I tend to change it around to saying you know, lots of legs that put checks in your mail um, and that will allow you... To be more comfortable to weather the, the, the economic uncertainties, the, the, the hurricanes that approach us. Um, I tend to find when you look at clients, the very wealthy tend to be in many ideas that are not liquid, for instance. They're not things that you can just sell on a whim uh, on any emotional greed high or, or fearful You know when it, things are down at the bottom. So to me, you know, having these types of ideas and, and, and ideas that tend to give you, uh, well, we're humans, you know, we tend to shoot ourselves in the foot. And so having many ideas that allow us to take a pause, don't make it necessarily that simple to just get out of the next day, a lot of times will allow them to kind of ease over the rough patches. And if you can collect a check along the way, even better. And the next thing you know, you know, you go down 10 years down the road, you go, wow, look, this, this property or this ABC investment did really well for me. You might have had years in the middle that were not great, but you eased it through, and, and at the end result was a pretty positive return. So it's, it's not necessarily about lowering risk. I think it's more about just, you know, taking the human nature of shooting ourselves in the foot, buying high and selling low, and trying to
2: ease that a bit. So how can you, you talk about the human nature. Um, it is easy to kind of chase performance. And so, for example, right now, with the stock market doing very well, people would tend to want to go into stocks. Um, bonds have done well for the last 30 years, even though things might have changed there. And cash is trash today. You earn nothing on CDs and money market funds. So the natural implica- uh, kind of um, uh, you know way, way that people would want to no- normally go would be get out of cash, go heavily into stocks, and less into bonds. It, is, is that kind of wrong emotionally, and is that something you're trying to counteract? Well, I think there's... <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, when
3: you look at the similarities of 2007 and 2000, a lot of things are screaming right now, same old, same old. Um, you know, and talking about the markets at the highs, I mean, I just, I tend to take a step back and ask myself a question. I mean, if things are so great in our economy, why does Ben Bernanke in September of 2012 come out with a $45 billion a month quantitative easing program, and three months later, up to $85 billion? You know, if things are so great, why are they printing so much? and needing to print more and more and more. Um, you know, Ultimately, uh, just trying to teach people about different ideas. And, and again, like you said, cash is trash right now. We're following the Japanese model where savers are getting punished for having money tucked away. Um, and realistically, with, with real inflation eating purchasing power as time goes on, um, you know, yeah, the natural tendency, you mentioned it. Bonds have been fantastic for 30 years. You know, something that I encourage listeners to, to take a look at is there's a government bond fund called Franklin Government Bond Fund, which shows its history from 1971. And what's pretty amazing about that chart is it shows what happened to that government bond fund from 1971 to 81, which was a 40% drop in value. And that's what happened during, you know, the inflationary spiral of the 70s. Bonds are, in a sense, and like you mentioned, are probably – I mean, we're at the lowest interest rates in history, so people naturally go to stocks. What I'm trying to do is teach people there's other choices than stocks. There's many other concepts that you can get into that make solid common sense. Everything has levels of risk. Everything has its pros and its cons. And the goal with the book was to teach people what these different ideas were so that they could show up to their advisor with a blueprint that matches their beliefs and give themselves a better
2: fighting chance. You talk about protecting yourself in good times and bad. Uh, as far as what advisor you pick, you, you could choose between a general practitioner and a specialist. What are the pros and cons of going either way with that? Uh,
3: something I've seen over the last years and what you find with a lot of the presentations that are being out there are what I call one-trick ponies. I mean, for instance, and nothing against any particular industry. I mean, you know, we're licensed for everything. And just as a simple disclaimer, there's no good and there's no bad investments. There's, there's different times in an economic cycle that just make more sense. Case in point, and I'm just going to be really blunt on this, I'm not a big fan of, of fixed annuities today simply because they are based on 10-year treasury bonds. And with rates as low as they are, the insurance companies have very little money to be able to extend to the investors. When someone puts money into, say, a fixed annuity today, you're pretty much locking in yourself at a 1% or 2% interest rate, which is going to get killed to purchasing power. That being said, if interest rates in our general economy were 10 or 12%, fixed annuities might be a fantastic idea. So just with the disclaimer, there's no good and there's no bad ideas. Um, to me, it's just having you know, many different concepts together um, and, and, put, and making them work and trying to find the ideas that just make more common sense. So a Very general good. practitioner would be someone who is going to be versed in many ideas and willing to work with anything that makes sense. And a, and a specialist is someone that says, you know, I'm only working with bonds. Well, this isn't the right time potentially to
2: be in bonds. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Van Cleff. Uh, he is the president and CEO of VFG Securities. Uh, He's an expert on the whole question of diversification. His new book is called The Wealth Code 2.0. We'll be back after this.
4: Always talk in business. Talk to an expert. Call now toll free 866 472 5790. That's 866 472 5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: Everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand. Join Rochelle McCrary for The Leader and the Muse. Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success. For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level. Are you and your family in debt? Today, over 40% of American households are spending more than they make. And that means our society is getting deeper and deeper in debt. Escape the debt trap. With host and attorney Kenneth Neely is here to help you avoid the problems involved with debt, including rebuilding credit, filing bankruptcy, short-selling your home, resolving IRS tax problems, and much more. Escape the Debt Trap airs live every Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel.
5: If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk.
4: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back
2: to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Van Clef. Uh, He is the president and CEO of VFG Securities. He's an expert on the whole subject of diversification. And his new book is called The Wealth Code 2.0. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thanks, Jordan. Just tell people a little bit about your firm before we get back to the diversification question and what do you offer and tell us a little bit about the kind of clients you have. You know,
3: the, the primary thing we offer is education. And I'll be really blunt, we do it for free. You know, I've always had two rules at the firm. Number one is education is always free. And number two, we don't judge anyone by their, their, their uh, the book of business that's bringing to the door. And, and the reason being is I really believe in a concept of what goes around comes around. Um, you take care of everyone and you're, it's amazing who they know that they bring to the door and so we build our firm primarily through referrals from our current clients. Uh, the two things we specialize in is is really bringing uh, a lot of alternative investments to the table many many different concepts and ideas most people have never even heard of but once they learn about them through a slow process of teaching them, they start realizing maybe parts are really applicable for them and then the second thing we do a lot is is uh, we work on ideas of income tax reduction, and we, we refer out to various tax groups in the country that, you know, really help people, you know, play by the game. You know, it's, you know people tend to, you know, what is it, 1914, Justice Learned Hand said so there's two systems of tax, those for the informed and those for the uninformed. And so we try to teach our clients to inform them and then send them to the appropriate people to, to help them.
2: And the, so you charge a management fee, an asset management fee, is that the way you work?
3: We work as a hybrid. So ultimately, we teach clients that if money is going to be in the stock market that we're going to help them with, it's going to be asset fees. If money is going to be in things that are tied up or illiquid, they're going to be commissionable-based. And then a lot of stuff we do is just, you know, basically it's our way of building our value for the clients. And the idea is we teach them this concept of our version of diversification, and we let them pick the way that they want to pay us. And
2: um, you have a website. What is your website? What people can find at that website?
3: Uh, uh, the website is vfgroup.net, V is in Victor, F is in Frankgroup.net. And pretty much just a little overview of us, uh, some of the concepts we're doing, things of that nature. Um, the book's website is thewealthcode.com. And, uh, you know, there there's a bunch of videos that kind of talk about the ideas. But between both websites, you can get a lot of good information about who we are and kind of the ideas we're talking about.
2: And do you have a minimum amount that people need to bring to invest with you?
3: No. Um, I, I will be blunt. Uh, a lot of the techniques we do generally require, you know, a little bit, you know, 250000 to properly diversify. But many times clients, I mean, I'll give you a great story. A lady came into my office in 2006, and she brought 4000 bucks. Everyone on the block, and being in Los Angeles as an advisor every 12 feet, Uh, Everyone told her, no, thank you. Well, I spent a lot of time with her, and I taught her about different concepts that had nothing to do with what she was going to do with her four grand. And years later, actually in 2010, her uncle shows up on my doorstep, and he had a multi-million dollar account. And his first thing he said to me was, no one has ever spent as much time with me as you spent with my niece. So the reality is what goes around comes around.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Before we get back to diversification, uh, we want to talk about taxes a little bit. Now, we've had tax rates go up particularly for the wealthy, recently, and there's potential higher taxes across the board, both at the federal level.
3: Don't forget payroll taxes for everyone
2: else. And payroll taxes, and and at the federal level and also at the state level. In California, you've had an increase in the top rate. So what are some strategies, legally, that people can do uh, to minimize these taxes based on the new regime we're in now?
3: You know, ultimately, a lot of the strategies um, involve really just understanding the system a little bit better. And, you know, example for your your business owners. I mean, this is when, when clients come in, the very first thing I start asking them, especially if they're self-employed, is what kind of tax reduction techniques or what type of strategies are they implementing for themselves. And a lot of times they say, well, you know, I go to my CPA and, and he puts me into a pension account or a, a SEP IRA or whatever. I say, well, why, you know, the first thing I say is, okay, so you have one company. Is it incorporated? Well, it's an S-corp because it's passed through. I said, do you realize that some of the best strategies out there are designed for C-Corps? You know, case ex- point, you have one company, and there's something called upstreaming, which is basically forming a second independent company that does business, you know, dealings with your first company. And the idea is you're able to split income. You know, example of this, maybe you have all your income landing on December 31st of each year, a calendar year. Why? A lot of times people might get to the, towards the end of the year, and they don't need that income. So if you have a second company that does a legitimate service to your first business, you can now start streaming money to it. It's called upstreaming. And that company, for instance, has a fiscal year ending, say, June thirtieth. You've just deferred taxation. There's many, many techniques and and you know, strategies involved with this. You know, example of this home office deductions and and and, uh, and automobile mileage. I mean, these are the number one and number two reasons people get audited, because they don't know what they're doing. And most accountants will say, oh, don't do a home office because that's a major red flag. Well, there's, there's standardized forms in the tax code specifically for home office. It's not, a, it's not a red flag. It's just if you do it wrong. You know, I always ask clients, oh, we do a home office. I said, show me a picture of your office. And they'll like, what are you talking about? I said, that's the first thing an IRS auditor will ask you. Show me a picture of your, of your home office. Is it a real office? You start fumbling on that, you're pretty much going to get you know, you know, audited. You know, yeah. Those simple strategies like that to really protect and reduce taxes legally.
2: Okay. Now, In your book, uh, it's called The Wealth Code 2.0, you talk about all the different asset classes that people can invest in. So I just want to go briefly through some of them. And tell me the pros and cons of uh, these different ones. Uh, variable annuities is something you, you think is plays some role. What are the pros and cons of variable annuities?
3: Uh, right, it's uh, <laughs> a funny one you picked. Um, I actually, at this point, feel there's more negatives than really any positives for variable annuities. Um, the problem with variable annuities is you know is the internal fee structure and the ongoing. And what it does is it puts you know bottom line. There's so many bells and whistles to to variable annuities, and, and lately the last three, four, five years, all these things like guaranteed income riders and bonuses and death benefits and all these things. Um, the biggest con I think is people don't understand what they're buying, and because of that, they're telling the selling points and you know from this last segment from a one-trick pony, uh, an advisor that only sells insurance products like annuities. Um, the, the pros, of course, you know, the way the industry will say is there's tax deferral and, and things of that nature. But I think the cons in this case, um, you know, the internal fee structures, which, you know, realistically are between 3 and 5% a year, eat up the positive. And last but not least, if someone is telling you that you have guaranteed growth at 7%, ask yourself a very simple question for the listener. If the insurance company is making 1% or 2% on the inherent underlying assets, how can they pay you seven?
2: what is the answer to that? <laughs> they
3: don't. Here's what happens. Example, all these, all these income riders, basically the way they work is your money gets, you know, you, you don't start the rider for at least 10 years. So let's say you put $100 in, and people will keep looking at their statements and it goes up 7% a year, but they think that that's their money. The reality is it's not. That's the insurance companies, what's called the benefit base. And at the end of the 10th year, you go to take that money out, they'll say, nope, sorry, you can only get that money if you annuitize it typically over 20 years or longer, which means to take a payment out. All the insurance company has done is basically force you to take out your own principal, and it takes usually about 16 to 18 years before they ever have to dip into a dollar of their own pocket, otherwise they've just paid you out your own principal. So please read the fine print, Ask hard questions, and instead of talking only to your advisor, call the insurance company directly. Ask them questions. You tend to get different answers.
2: You then talk about adaptive, uh, adaptive managed stocks and bonds, kind of active portfolio managers, uh, as opposed to passive uh, index-oriented funds. What are the pros and cons of each of those?
3: Uh, starting off with the cons,
2: anytime you have
3: someone who's really trying to time the market, and that's bluntly what an adaptive manager is, they're, they're balancing buy and sell decisions based on, you know, what they feel, and instead of just being fully invested all the time, which is what more passive investing has done. Uh, the con with that is you get a lot of people that talk a big game, but all you can do is look at their actual results. Take a look at their audited financials, what they've actually done. That being said, if you look at the last 13 years of the stock market, passive investing has failed. It's basically gone back and forth, back and forth. Um, and, and sadly, with passive investing, unfortunately, we as human beings, you know, there's a group called Dowbar that does a study. We human beings, even in our passive S&P 500 mutual funds, when the going gets rough, as it was in March of 2009, we sell. So we don't stay passive. We actually become active ourselves. What we try to talk about, and there are several great managers out there, many, many different groups, have demonstrated a really good knack for getting in and, more importantly, getting out of harm's way and protecting the principal. You know, I like to talk to clients, focus on groups that are very defense-oriented. Anyone can make money in good markets. It's those who try to do better in the bad times is who we try to to participate with, and there's great groups out there.
2: So it sounds like you're more interested – Putting money into active management than passive management.
3: Oh yes, in in the last, you know, with the last, if we were in a bull market as we were from 1980 to 2000, passive management is simple. It's easy. Put your money in the markets; they do just great. The problem is, we are in a bear market, and it's a secular bear. And if history is our guide, we're going to be in this for another 10 to 15 years minimum. Um, and so, in a market that's sideways, you need a manager who's willing to step in and more importantly, willing to step out of the market to sit in cash even and ride out some of the rough patches. And that's the way that they've been able to generate better returns in the market as a whole.
2: Wow. You, most people don't think we're in a secular bear market. With <laughs> the Dow Jones hitting new highs every day.
3: Uh, you know, if you look at the Dow Jones in 2000, we we're 11,700. But if you inflation adjusted that 11,700, Today, you know, the Dow would have to be at about twenty-three thousand to be the same value as it was in two thousand. I'm talking in terms of purchasing price. Um, The S and P is even more dramatic than that. So I agree, we're at nominal values that are that are approaching the highs, but I tend to think in terms of purchasing power, and we are still far below where we were in two thousand. And that, to me, you know, is a secular bear.
2: Indeed. Okay, we're going to take a break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman with the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Van Cleef. Uh, he is the CEO and president of VFG Securities. His new book is called The Wealth Code 2.0, and we'll be back after this.
4: The Business Community's First Choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network.
1: together in conversations that make a difference right here on the voice america business channel every friday morning at 10 a.m pacific standard time
0: everybody needs expert advice when they look to develop their personal brand join Rochelle mccrary for the leader and the muse Rochelle and her guests will bring you practical tips and tools to help you build your brand in ways that propel you into greater personal and business success For strategies, stories, and much more, tune in to the Voice America Business Channel every Friday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time for The Leader and the Muse. And get ready to take your brand to the next level.
4: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Van Cleff, the president and CEO of VFG Securities based in Santa Monica, California. His new book is called The Wealth Code 2.0. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thanks, Jordan. We're going through the different assets uh, that you should diversify your portfolio with. The next one is what you call consumer-grade real estate. What do you mean by that?
3: Uh, consumer-grade real estate is basically real estate and generally small you know, residential, commercial, a million or less, generally. It used to be kind of termed $5 million or less. But lately, we've added this asset class to clients uh, starting in the beginning of 2011. And realistically, what we've been doing is uh, single-family houses throughout the Midwest – um, you know, we've seen such a drop in prices from 2006 the peak that these classes started making a lot of sense. It's something that I've done for myself many, many years, and, you know, it's a great category for cash flow, for tax advantages, and for, you know, a check in the mail. So you're uh, saying it, to rent
2: them out. You're saying to buy them and rent correct. them out, not a not place to
3: live. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really too interested in flipping. Uh, we're not looking for fast, you know, profits for clients. We're looking for cash flow and And so, the housing segment that's between roughly 65 and 100,000, what you get is you're getting a rental pool of very stable tenants that you know rents relative to the value of the house tend to be in you know in in high single digits. Um, And so ultimately, uh, it allows for a lot of people to to own something real, tangible. There's always pros and cons with single-family houses, you know, especially if it's distant-owned who's your manager, that's usually the weakest link because they're the ones that are going to nickel and dime you to death. And the second thing is, you know, the valuations of the houses, the tenants that you have to work with, things of that nature, but it can be a great leg on the table.
2: So do you uh, hire management companies to find the properties and manage them once they've been purchased?
3: The way we do it is strictly as a referral basis uh, for the firm since we are not licensed real estate agents but what you know i'll give you an example we have a group in indianapolis that we're working with and they themselves are developers they're buying houses out of foreclosure they're rehabbing them pretty much from the ground up um... they're tacking out, you know they're getting everything at the wholesale price and selling the houses at fair market appraisal um... and then they're managing it and so so what's nice it's been great for clients of ours is someone who's interested in this category and wants to add it to their their a leg on their table they're getting everything taken care of for them, and they're really getting a direct deposit once a month in their account. You know, if there are expenses for the property, if there's issues, um, you know, ultimately the manager takes care of it. And, and that's, again, to reiterate this, to your listeners, the management is the weakest link of this equation. You really need to make sure your manager is on the up and up because they're the ones that will, will either make a great investment or really make it a disaster.
2: Now you're saying this now because house price prices have come down. We were you saying the same thing like in 2006, 2007 when the housing market was soaring and prices were going up a lot?
3: You know what? I'll tell you a personal experience. I bought a duplex in Buffalo at the peak, literally July of 2006. This was a little property, um, but, and, and, I, and I paid cash for it effectively. And, and frankly, unlevered the cash flow net, net of everything was about 15%. What I've seen since then was the value of this property hasn't dropped. It currently appraises for just over what I paid at the peak of the market, and I tend to. And I haven't raised the rents, by the way, so my cash flow is still the same. But I tend to attribute the valuations being so stable because the the cash flow is so great. There's a lot of investors out there in these days of, like you said, cash is trash, that would look at a solid, you know, return like that and say, you know what, I'll pay that price. You'll never really. I mean, anything's possible. Don't get me wrong. But I tend to believe that these small family properties will, will have downside price protection because the cash flow is so strong.
2: So that's a, a residential. How about commercial? How about buying office buildings or shopping centers or those kind of things?
3: You know, as long as you stick into common sense, um, any property can be well. I mean, they always say the profits made in the purchase – um, you know, I tend to think in terms of ideas of common sense. For instance, another category that we're, we're going to talk about is is the commercial or uh, 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 commercial grade real estate, which is typically large properties. Um, if you stick to common sense, case in point, storage centers. You know, in good times and bad times. You know, in good times, businesses are flourishing; they have extra stuff they want to store. it It's cheaper. In bad times, people are downsizing. Unfortunately, we're a nation of pack rats, so instead of someone selling all their stuff, they put it in storage looking for the next bright day when they'll need that. As long as you stick to things that make just common sense, I think you'll do well in the long run. Another example, you know, Walmarts and Walgreens. I mean, in bad times, people still will go get their toothbrush. Uh, People, you know, apartment buildings tend to be pretty stable. Um, uh, You know, residential ones have definitely taken on the chin. But large commercial portfolios in this day and age where you know there's still so many foreclosures, those tend to make a lot of sense. The flip side, in, in good economies, sure, office buildings where you have a lot of office tenants make sense. But in bad economies, those are the first people that go out of business. And next thing you know, you have massive vacancies and those buildings suffer terribly. So we try to stay to ideas that just make common sense in these categories.
2: Another category that's part of your asset diversification is collectibles. Uh, So all kinds of different things would fit into collectibles, trading cards, stamps, books, rare cars, wine, rare coins, all kinds of things. There's there's so many things. How can you find something that's going to really drive value unless you become a real specialist in any of these areas? Well, that is – and collectibles
3: is definitely one of the trickiest of the categories. It's really designed for the – I mean, the purpose of collectibles is pure inflation protection. Um, You know, take wine as an example, rare wine. I mean, what we're seeing with the advent of China and the Chinese wealth that is exploding is the rare wine market has has been going through the roof year after year. And and the reason being is a lot of Chinese uh, purveyors of wine, they're buying these cases of extraordinarily rare wine, but they're drinking them. They're not just putting them in a cellar somewhere and to be stored for another 50 years. They're enjoying the wine. So what's happening is the supply is getting dwindled, yet the demand is going higher and higher. You know, you look at art. You look at rare coins. These tend to be the number one and number two performing investments of all time. You know, and because people are really scared of the massive printing that's going around the world with, with all the central banks and something that's collectible and rare will tend to hold its value sure is there massive amounts of fraud involved in these kind of ideas yes i mean everything from Sotheby's and christie's has had massive fraud so you really have to do your homework or work with groups you know for instance when we work with rare coins we refer to a gentleman back in connecticut who's been doing this over fifty years so we really want to be with specialists who we've built a trusting relationships with because there's, there's a lot of uh, people out there that can take advantage of people's lack of knowledge. Another area
2: you talk about is oil and gas investments. Now, this is uh, actually investing directly, not through publicly traded stocks. Correct. What, what are the advantages and disadvantages of doing oil and gas investments?
3: Uh, the, the biggest disadvantage tends to be the prices of oil. If oil and natural gas collapse, as natural gas has done the last few years, that's really hurt many programs that were natural gas programs. And the biggest disadvantage is your checks get really miserable. Um, The flip side is, and and a lot of times someone will say, well, why don't I just own Exxon versus a direct participation program that might be in a royalty or developmental drilling? And the major reason is when you're a stockholder of Exxon, you're the last man on the totem pole. After... The, you know, When the oil comes out of the ground, the groups that actually pulled it out, they get paid first. The royalty owners get paid first, and then you got the companies and the light bulbs and the salaries and the bonuses and the junkets. What's left is what's for the stockholders. What we try to advocate with clients is let's be first in line, whether it's the royalty or developmental drillers, and that way our checks, which are really designed to be a pension over many, many, many years. I mean, talk about some of the most illiquid investments you can get in. You know, you'll get in these investments, and they might, you know, in theory, last 100 years. Uh, and good luck trying to sell, because you, your share is an ownership, and it might be a 1,000 wells. That being said, if you can receive distributions that are effectively tied to oil, which is a good indicator for inflation, you'll probably be happy in the long run. Uh, another major advantage of oil is, to be blunt, big oil has big lobbyists, and they tend to get the big, big tax benefits for themselves. So with oil programs, you know, there's a type called developmental drilling programs. These allow an investor to get what's called an intangible drilling cost, which is an instantaneous tax deduction. And, and just to, to, as a prelude, these investments are right for some people and not right for others. I mean, there's a lot of times many of these programs have to be accredited only, which is a million-dollar net worth, not including your house, uh, because of the way the designs of the partnership. So just saying that out there. So there's definitely lots of pros, which is tax benefits and, and checks that are tied generally to inflation. The cons, of course, is if you get into bad programs and those wells, you know, you know there's three types of drilling. You, you have royalty owners, you have developmental drilling, which is putting wells in existing fields, and then you have wildcatting, which is going out to a new field. I'm not a fan at all of wildcatting because I think you might as well just go to Vegas and gamble instead, but the other two programs have a lot of foundations for success. Uh, do your homework and work with an advisor who's well-versed in these things.
2: What kind of yields can people expect of a successful developmental or royalty program? <laughs> uh,
3: yields can be you lose all your money, uh, which is the very first thing to tell clients. And yields can be high double digits. Um, you know, there's everything in between. Uh, in general, and again, this is there's no guarantees and, and everything has risk. But in general, when you're going into a royalty program, you're expecting you know mid to high single digits. Uh, when you're going into a developmental drilling program, which is you're actually the driller of the different wells, you know you're sh- you're shooting for low double digits if, if possible. Uh, and again, anything's possible, <laughs> so you got to keep that in mind. You want to look at the groups you're investing with, what's their histories how have the previous programs in those areas done, that gives you at least an indication of what you think the success rate could be.
2: Is your view long-term that oil and gas are going to be rising in price or would be good for these kind of programs? Uh,
3: my viewpoint is with the advent of printing around the world, really that began massively in March of 2009. Anything that's tangible-oriented, especially oil and natural gas, uh, will do well in the long run. I mean, I'll give you an example. Natural gas... I mean, here with the advent of fracking and horizontal drilling, you're seeing natural gas prices in the U.S. in the low threes, yet in Japan, after the, the terrible tsunami that they experienced, they're paying $19 per unit of, of natural gas. In Europe, they're paying you know, 13 In China, they're paying $15. we are paying 3 here. That's not going to last very long. And yet a lot of the pundits on TV are saying, oh, we have um, a 100-year supply of natural gas. Yeah, until we start shipping it to the world, uh, you know, it's you know, a lot of times when clients come to you say, you know, only if we drill in Alaska, our prices would come down. But what they're missing is, oil is a worldwide commodity. We drill oil in Alaska; it might be bought by China, or it probably will. So my viewpoint is, in the long run, it will be a good inflationary hedge. Just to give you some history, in 1998, oil was 12 bucks a barrel. Today, it's 90. One heck of right. an improvement.
2: Indeed. Very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, This is Jordan Goodman of the Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Jason Van Cleff. He's the president and CEO of VFG Securities based in Santa Monica, California. His new book is called The Wealth Code 2.0. We'll be back after this.
5: stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Bob Pritchard has over 30 years of experience as a straight-talking business consultant and author working with some of the top Fortune 500 companies In today's ever-changing business environment, people are working to transform themselves, their futures, and their business. Tune in to Business Reinvention with your host, Nancy Lynn. To stay ahead of the game in business, you have to constantly reinvent yourself and your organization. With Nancy's experience and that of her guest experts, you'll learn from stories of inspiration, innovation, and forward thinking. Listen for Business Reinvention, live every Monday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait, they just go for it.
4: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
1: You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan.
2: Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Jason Van Clef. Uh, he is the president and CEO of VFG Securities. He's also come out with a new book called The Wealth Code 2.0. Welcome back to the show, Jason. Thanks, Jordan. So we're going to go through some of the other assets that you uh, have people take a look at. Equipment leasing is one of them. How does that work and what are the pros and cons of that?
3: Uh, bottom line, equipment leasing is, is what the vast majority of companies in, in the world use. Uh, instead of buying you know, big pieces of equipment, it's better to lease it for themselves. Uh, it takes less money off their balance sheets. Uh, these, these types of investments are basically the groups that own or usually own the equipment and are buying it for them and making a fairly, you know, decent return for themselves, net of everything. Um, it's a great way, again, of just owning another category. tend They, they tend to be longer-term investments, 8 to 10 years in, in time frame, because a lot of times the equipment. Um, and, you know, the pros and cons, the pros tend to be fairly stable checks. The cons tend to be the time frame
2: of them. And then you have institutional-grade real estate. This would be things like real estate investment trusts. Right. What would be the advantage of that particularly compared to the earlier consumer kind of single-family home real estate?
3: Pure diversification. I mean, consumer-grade real estate obviously took, a, took it on the chin from 2006 to 2011 simply because you know, when buyers are buying properties, there's a lot more invo- emotion involved. You know, someone might go and bid a house up 50000 simply because it had granite countertops Whereas with large commercial, which is a way of us diversifying into massive types of portfolios, whether they're you know billion dollar portfolios of apartment buildings or medical facilities or storage centers or what like, so it, these and, and particularly there's two types of REITs, real estate investment trusts. The traded types, which are on the stock market, which in my opinion are just glorified stocks. Market goes up, they go up. Market goes down, they go down. And the non-traded version, which allows investors to be more directly in the portfolio themselves and not tied to the emotionality. So we like institutional-grade real estate simply as a way of diversifying around the world into types of real estate that the normal average investor, even the very wealthy, would never have the money or capital to get into.
2: So you like the non-traded REITs more than the traded REITs?
3: much more. Uh, Simply for the liquidity issue, I'm trying to provide clients an ability to be in a portfolio of XYZ properties. We can look at the cash flow. We can look at the receivables. We can look at the health of the portfolio. The wild card we are taking out as, for instance, the, the traded REITs have is the liquidity. Case in point, in 2008, the traded REITs on the stock market dropped an average of about 82%. Commercial real estate did not drop 82 percent. It was about 25 to 30. The difference is the emotionality of people panicking. I again am trying to get that out of the equation for our clients who are looking for a check in the mail and realizing that these are longer-term investments, three, five, seven years. And if we can let the properties weather the storms, we hopefully will come out smelling, you know, doing well on the on the back end.
2: Another asset you talk about is collateralized notes, and particularly those. Uh, issued by business development corporations what are the pros and cons of those
3: uh, business development corporations are basically companies that lend money generally either to private companies you know case in point you might have a group like toys Us, which is a private company fidelity cargyle enterprise a lot of the big names out there most people don't know uh, many of them are privately so if these companies need money they go to several different groups to get it you might have your kkr's your blackstone's apollos and things like that so what's nice about these BDCs, and this is relatively a new category that was opened up to investors that was a few years ago, it gives us the ability to, get, to become these lenders to these companies in the, the ultimate position, generally in what's called the senior preferred debt, which is the highest on the food chain. Why this is important is because, you know, take a look at General Motors. When they went out of business, every person in the capital stack of that company lost money except one group, the senior preferred holders. There was about $6 billion. And these debts are are basically collateralized, and thus the term collateralized notes, by all the assets of General Motors in that case. Uh, So they tend to, you know, have lots of loans that tend to be short-term, so the cash flow tends to be interest rate sensitive. There's other categories in the note program, which are life settlement notes, as well as mortgage notes, uh, primarily first positions. So you can have many different categories within this leg.
2: Now, in putting all these different assets together, uh, part of the decision you have to make is what should be liquid and what, sh- what can be illiquid, you have as a long term holding. How do you decide how much should be liquid and how much should not be liquid? Uh,
3: usually it's a case by case example. Um, it tends to be, and we tend to actually focus more on the illiquid stuff with a combination of liquid. I mean, all investments can be thought of safe or not safe, but you can't say that word, but capital preservation, uh, a higher return is a goal and liquidity. And any particular investment can only have two of the three descriptors. What we try to do is mix and match. You know, something is the goals higher return with preservation, that's generally the real assets category. Something's going the goals higher return with liquidity, that's the stock market. If your goal is preservation, liquidity, that's the bank. My goal is to mix and match these three categories based on the individual circumstances uh, providing for liquidity needs. And this is where it's really important. Chapter eight of the book describes the whole Process of how we evaluate a client and then make those
2: recommendations. You have a chapter as well on life insurance and how they relate to your wealth code. What role does life insurance play in creating a whole diversified portfolio?
3: You know uh, that chapter was put in because of unfortunately early in the show we talked about one trick ponies. I was trying to tell some major components that is not told often. With the sale, in particular, of fixed annuities and some variables and so forth, life insurance is vital for certain parts. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, when you get a life insurance-only advisor, every solution they have will be life insurance-oriented. Um, I was trying to teach more of the of the other 90% of the story. Life insurance, in my opinion. Uh, is very valuable for families with family obligations, kids, spouses, things of that nature. But once that stuff is passed, the need tends to fall away until someone gets back into potentially an estate issue where they have the death taxes. Chapter 9 was designed to kind of give people an understanding of why people use life insurance for estate planning purposes and, and frankly, a lot of the bad stuff, too. So it's, it's a mixture.
2: One of the areas you're talking about particularly are right? index universal life uh, programs, uh, where you have some participation rate in the S&P 500. Uh, Are those a good deal in general?
3: It depends on the economic cycle. When interest rates are, I mean, the the basic question with any index life insurance policy or index fixed annuity is understanding that the basis for these contracts is the 10-year treasury bond. Right now, we are at historical lows which means that the insurance company that basically takes the vast majority of your money and puts in a treasury bond has no interest to work with. Thus, they're going to be able to give very little back to the clients. This is where all these bells and whistles come up to try to, I'm going to be really blunt, to try to basically (laughs) pull the wool over people's eyes and make them believe that, in theory, they might get a much better return than in practicality they're going to get. Um, And so, in general, in a low interest rate environment, these products, if you're thinking great returns, aren't probably going to deliver. In a high interest rate environment, just as bonds would be great. In 1980, interest rates were high. Bonds and fixed annuities would be a fantastic choice. But in low environments, not so great.
2: At the end of the book, you have uh, various case studies. We, we don't have time to get into them, but what, what can people learn from looking at the case studies of different cases you've had? as uh, How to put a portfolio together. I have five
3: cases which pretty much cover the gambit from the ultra-wealthy to the business owner to the very beginning investors. And the idea was to look at the methodology of how we evaluate someone and talk about ideas that would make sense for their situation. That's actually one of the most important parts of the book because everyone can find themselves in those case studies and see, okay, that makes sense. And I see why this particular client wouldn't want to do that. So a very valuable part of the book.
2: We have about a minute to go. Just kind of sum up what people can get from your book and what you're dealing with you, different from what they're getting from other financial advisors out there.
3: The book's purpose was to teach people the different ideas out there so that they can take control of their own finances. Something I've seen time and time again is people are scared. They go to an advisor and, you know, they have the wool pulled over their eyes. Uh, What I believe that we're doing for clients is teaching people the different things out there so that they can take control of their own finances and whether they're working with us or working with other advisors, they're much more confident in what they're going to do and how they're going to have their situation put together. And because of that, I believe they'll be more successful in the long run.
2: Terrific. Well, thanks so much. My guest uh, during this edition of the Money Answer Show has been Jason Van Clef. He's the CEO and president of BFG Securities based in Santa Monica, California. His new book is called The Wealth Code 2.0. And we've learned a lot about diversifying into different assets. Thanks for being a guest on The Money Answer Show, Jason.
3: Jordan, thank you for
2: having me. Thanks again. And we'll be back with another edition of The Money Answer Show next week. Goodbye for now.
1: Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and The Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.